Genesis chapter 18 this morning is where we're going to find ourselves. Genesis 18. So, let me ask you a question. How many of you are truly thankful for God's mercy? Okay, good, good. Right answer. Wasn't a trick question. How do you show God you're thankful for his mercy? What's different about you because God has shown you mercy? What has changed about you now that God has demonstrated his rich mercy? I think oftentimes many of us forget what we've been mercied from. And so what ends up happening is we just look like everybody else. Because we fail to recognize what it is that God has truly saved us from. And so this morning, what I want to encourage each of us to do is to consider what it is that God has truly saved us from. And I'm going to do that from a very interesting place in Scripture. Before we jump into this place in Scripture, let me encourage you to remember that this, um, this is not a book of moral codes. This isn't about moral training. This is a book of good news, and the Bible is about God's grace in the lives of people who don't deserve it, who aren't looking for it, who keep resisting it, and then who don't appreciate it even after it saved them. And so this morning as we go through this story, I want to remind you that the story of the Bible, the story of Christianity isn't a story about the characters that are in this book. It's not a story today about Abraham. It's not a story today about Lot. It's not even a story about Sodom and Gomorrah. Today's story is about the God who is just, gracious, and merciful. And that's what we must make sure we remember. We must make sure we remember that the God of today's story in Genesis 18 and 19 is, in fact, the same God of our story. And so just as we find one who should celebrate mercy well in Genesis 18 and 19, we find hundreds here who should celebrate well. Genesis chapter 18, let me start reading in verse 16. It's, uh, before I do, let me set the stage. Um, 16 kind of just starts. So you, uh, last week we talked about the three men stopping by to visit Abraham and Sarah to tell Sarah she was going to have a child. Uh, these three men turned out to be two angels and, and some appearance of the Lord, which we're not exactly sure how that works, but it is, okay? And so these three are there. That leads us to verse 16. The men got up from there and looked out over Sodom. And Abraham was walking with them to see them off. And the Lord said this, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? I mean, Abraham's to become a great and powerful nation. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through him, for I've chosen him so that he will command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and what is just. This is how the Lord will fulfill to Abraham what he promised him. The Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is immense. Their sin is extremely serious. I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me, and if not, I will find out. The men turned from there and went toward Sodom, while Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Let me, let me 
stop there. You have this really unique, interesting moment where God himself um, begins to verbalize maybe even his thought patterns. So, so I like to look at this and be like, okay, this normalizes me. I talk to myself all the time. God's doing the same thing. Praise the Lord. Um, but here he's saying, he's asking like some different questions. Like, should, should I show Abraham what my intent is with Sodom and Gomorrah? Should, should I explain to him what's about to happen? Should I lay this out for him? Should I, I, I don't know if I should. And then he says that, now the reason I have chosen him is so that he can command his children and his house after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just. The reason I have chosen Abraham is so that the story of my character, the story of my my righteousness, the story of who I am as God can be told from generation to generation to generation. I want that story to be con- continually told through the generations. So, all right, so, so I'm going to tell Abraham what it is that I'm going to do. Let me point some, a couple things out to you. First of all, God did not need to tell Abraham. He could have kept that to himself. So there's a reason God shared that with Abraham. Secondly, He didn't need to use human terms to help explain to Abraham what it was that was about to happen. God says to Abraham, this cry against Sodom and Gomorrah is is immense. Their sin seems to be extremely serious. So I will go down to see if what they have done justifies the cry that has come up to me. If not, I will find out. So, So God does not need to come down from heaven to investigate things. Genesis chapter 11, they're building the Tower of Babel. And it says that God came down to look to see what it was they were building. God sees that already. He doesn't need to come down. What is happening in this language is God is using the language of humanity so that we can understand something really important about God's character. What we're seeing here in this story is that God is just. What we're seeing is that God is just with purpose, with intentionality, with integrity. It's not a random justice that he just throws around. Here is the picture of investigation that he is giving to Abraham so that Abraham can fully grasp God's character. Not only is he just, but he is trustworthy because he's not going to make a random decision. He's going to make a decision based on fact, based on truth. God is just. What God tells Abraham is that there is sin happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. The cry has come up to me. I'm going to go investigate to see if it is as bad as they say it is. And if it is, the intentionality then is there will be judgment. There will be justice. There will be uh, uh, um, justice meted out on these people for their heinous sins against me. So there you have it. Put yourself in Abraham's shoes for a minute. What are you going to do with that information? Oh, who do you call? God shows up at your doorstep and says, hey, I'm going to Baltimore. I'm going to wipe that place out if it's as bad as it seems to be. How are you going to react? Look at Abraham. Verse uh, 23. Perhaps one of the more interesting passages in all Scripture And I think you'll catch on to it pretty quick. Abraham steps forward and says to God, will you really sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there's 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away instead of sparing the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people who are in it? 
You could not possibly do such a thing to, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. You, you could not possibly do that. Won't the judge of the whole earth do what is just? And the Lord answered Abraham and said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Then Abraham answered, Since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, even though I am dust and ashes, suppose the 50 righteous lack five. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? God replied, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Then Abraham spoke to him again, suppose 40 are found there? God answered, I will not do it on account of 40. Then he said, Lord, let my Lord not be angry, I will speak further. Suppose 30 are found there. God answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. Then Abraham says again, since I have ventured to speak to my Lord, suppose 20 are found there. God replied, I will not destroy it. On account of 20. And Abraham said, let my Lord not be angry. And I'll speak just one more time. Suppose 10 are found there. God answered, I will not destroy it on account of 10. And when the Lord had finished speaking with Abraham, he departed and Abraham returned to his place. So how would you respond if God revealed to you he was on his way to mete out judgment against a sinful city. Abraham responded by pleading on behalf of those people. Now certainly he he knows a lot of these people who are in Sodom. He's pleading for his own nephew Lot and and a lot of the people in uh, Lot's clan, whether it be family or herdsmen, were people that Abraham already knew. I mean, Lot was with Abraham when they first left Ur. Lot was there with all of his herdsmen. And in fact, when they were in the land of Canaan, their, their herdsmen began to have tension because they were fighting over water. They were fighting over the grazing fields. And so Abraham and Lot had to split. But, but though they split and Lot went one way and Abraham went the other, there was still a, a depth of relationship, a foundation of relationship that existed there. So, so Abraham knew many people in Lot's family. But not only that, you, you fast forward a, a chapter or two from there, Lot finds himself in trouble. The rest of the city of Sodom finds itself in trouble there carried away by King Chedorlaomer, King Cheddar, for those of you keeping score, okay? And so King Cheddar carries all of Sodom away, and Abraham gets his militia together of 390-ish people, and they go after them, and they rescue the people of Sodom. And so now, not only does Abraham know many of them because they're Lot's herdsmen, but Abraham knows many of them because he individually rescued them from an evil king. God tells him, I'm going to judge them for their sin. And Abraham begins to plead with God. And he appeals right away, verse 25, to God's character, to his justice. God, certainly you are just, you are fair. So based on your justice, based on your fairness, I am going to appeal to you. I'm going to ask for grace. I'm going to ask for mercy on the people of that city. If if you would just find a few who know you, love you, and fear you, I'm, I'm begging. All the way down. Starts with 50. Gets all the way down to 10. And then you get the sense of how it ends that God's just done. He knows Abraham's going to keep going. It says, when God finished speaking with Abraham, he departed. When God's done talking, he's done talking. So he's just gone. 
The character of God is being put on display for Abraham here in two ways now. God says, I am a just God and I have to punish sin. But I'm a God who exercises his justice with a handful of mercy and grace. That's who I am. Which sets us up for what comes next. Verse 1, chapter 19. Those two angels then entered Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in Sodom's gateway. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed with his face to the ground. He said, my lords, turn aside to your servant's house. Wash your feet. Spend the night. Then you can get up early and go on your way. No, they said. We we would rather spend the night in the square. But Lot urged them so strongly that they followed him and went into his house. He prepared a feast and he baked unleavened bread for them. And they ate. So, here, so here's Lot, okay? So let me, let me back up even just a little bit more in the story of Lot, just for a minute. So, so Lot leaves Ur with Abraham, travels into the land of Canaan. A famine comes. Then he goes with Abram and Sarai at the time, not Abraham and Sarah, but Abram and Sarai, and they go into Egypt to escape the famine. And when they go into Egypt, then Abram convinces Sarai to lie and say that she's his sister. Uh, and, and Pharaoh takes... Sarai into his house and then realizes and finds out that actually they're not sister and brother, they're husband and wife, and kicks her out, but then also dumps a a measure of possessions and wealth and riches on Abraham and Lot. So now Abraham and Lot leave Egypt wealthier than they were when they went into Egypt. They return to Canaan, they begin to do their farming, the herdsmen begin quarreling like we just talked about, okay, and they separate. So, so, so Abram gives Lot the option, you pick which direction we go, and Lot goes one direction, and the direction that he goes is the direction that looks the most like Egypt, because he really liked it when they were in Egypt, evidently. And so, so he gets there, and in chapter 13, it says Lot moves and establishes his camp towards Sodom, near Sodom. Then you fast forward to chapter 14, and he is in Sodom when King Cheddar comes and invades and takes all those people captive, and Abraham has to go rescue him because he was in Sodom. He's been taken. Okay, now Abraham rescues him. Lot is free to go home, and now Lot not only goes back into Sodom, but now at the beginning of chapter 19, we find Lot sitting at the gateway of Sodom. The gateway would be where the judicial councils took place, and so so, and a lot of the leadership aspects of the city would happen there. So, so Lot is, is, is probably, he's mayor, town council, commissioner, a judge, one of those things. But Lot is part of the leadership now of this city of Sodom, how quickly things have changed and grown. The two angels make their way into Sodom. Lot invites them into the home and just kind of skipping through a couple of things there. Lot makes them a meal and they're getting ready for bed. Verse four, before they went to bed, The men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, the whole population surrounded the house. They called out to Lot and they said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Send them out to us so we can have sex with them. Lot went out to them at the entrance and and he shut the door behind him and he said, don't do this evil, my brothers. Look, Look, I've got two daughters who haven't been intimate with a man. I'll bring them out to you. You can do whatever you want to them. However, don't do anything to these men because they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of the way, they said. This one here, he came as an alien, but now he's acting like a judge. Now we're going to do more harm to you, Lot, than to them. They put pressure on Lot, and they came up to break down the door. But the angels reached out, brought Lot into the house with them, shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the entrance of the house, both young and old, with blindness, so they were unable to find the entrance. 
the theme of sinfulness and evil in Genesis takes a, a violent and, and somewhat repulsive turn right here. It talks about how the men of the city, young and old, the whole population surrounded Lot's house with intention to, co- to commit this crime against his guests. Now, let, me, let me just say this. Now, um, scripture, I believe scripture is literal. I believe that it is inerrant. I believe it is right in all aspects. But I also believe that sometimes we wrestle with, so what part is a literary device? What part is supposed to be like? So, so um, when you say the entire city was there, that can be hyperbole. Right? As a descriptive term. Mark chapter 1, Mark chapter 2, somewhere in there. It's one of those two. Uh, Jesus goes to Simon Peter's house. Simon Peter's mother-in-law is sick. Jesus heals her. And then it says that the town began bringing all of their sick and demon-possessed to the door. And the entire city showed up. Now, if you live in Tawnytown with me, you understand that statement. All the demon-possessed... All right, I can see who lives in Westminster. That's cool. <laughs> but that could have been hyperbole. It could have been literal. It could have been hyperbole. The idea isn't that it's an exact number. The idea is there is no question what the vast majority of people were doing. And in this moment, the vast majority of men, young and old, were surrounding Lot's house without a hint of subtlety to what they were doing or intending to do. When we read Genesis 19, particularly in 2021, you and I, as Bible-believing, Christ-centered Christians, must employ a level of integrity that has been sometimes lacking when dealing with Genesis chapter 19. Let me explain what I mean, and please do not turn off your hearing aid mid-sentence, because if you do, you are going to be angry. Chapter 19 of Genesis is not teaching us. The story of Sodom and Gomorrah is not teaching us that homosexuality is a particularly evil sin that should be judged worse than any other. No. Now, hear me. Homosexuality is a sin. I'm not saying it is not. I will stand toe-to-toe with anybody who says it is not a sin, and I will show you from Scripture why I believe homosexuality is a sin. However, it is not a particularly heinous sin that is worse than any other, and that's why God judged them. Now, homosexuality is not a worse sin than any other. Sir, Homosexuality is the exact same offense to God as the images that you are viewing that are pornographic in nature on your computer or your phone. They're an affront to God and his authority over you. Same level as homosexuality. Ma'am, homosexuality is the same level as you fantasizing about another man who is not your husband. Same level. I want to make that abundantly clear. The history of the church, we have gone to Genesis chapter 19 and made it some big explosive thing. It's all about homosexuality. No, it's not all about homosexuality. Homosexuality is a sin. This is not the passage 
or the text to build your argument on. In fact, there's a whole lot more going on here behind the scenes than just these men are homosexual. Let me, let me point this out to you. In Ezekiel, it gives us a little insight. It says, this is, this is your, your sister Sodom. Let me explain who Sodom is, and Ezekiel unpacks it. She and her daughters had pride. They had plenty of food. They had comfortable. They were secure, but they refused to help the poor and the needy. They were haughty. They did detestable acts before me. And so I removed them when I saw these things. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah lived in a culture where they had plenty. Their foods were covered, sorry, their tables were covered with food. Their bank accounts were doing just fine. And what they did around every turn is to splurge on themselves, and they made themselves the authority. They decided what was right and what was wrong. And anybody that disagreed with them, they would just ignore and push to the side. Does that sound like any place else? It seems a lot more than just homosexuality. And I want to be very clear about something else. If in reading chapter 19, the thing that disgusts you most is what those men surrounding the house intended to do, if that's what you walk away from Genesis chapter 19 just being, oh, it's terrible, you better check your heart. Because if the one thing you can't get out of your head about Genesis 19 is that these men wanted to commit a homosexual rape, can't believe how terrible that is, and you never even flinch, at the fact that Lot said, I got two daughters who are virgins. Take them and do whatever you want. Shame on you. Because that is repulsive. That is the picture of Sodom being inside of Lot instead of Lot being inside of Sodom. It's the picture of I want to protect whatever I want to protect because this is more important than that. Instead of protecting the very people who need to be protected, the needy, the poor, their own daughters. How could he possibly do that? Don't know. And I don't have time to dive into it to try to figure it out. I just know this. When the men hear Lot begin to speak, they make it abundantly clear he's an outsider. The men hear Lot, one of the leaders who was sitting at the city gate, begin to speak to them, and they're like, why are you even talking? Who, who are you? See, in this moment, we see Lot has zero influence over the people of Sodom. No matter what seat he sat in, his influence was gone. For time's sake, I need to keep moving. The angels rescue Lot. They strike the men with blindness. Verse 12. So the angels then said to Lot, do you have anybody else here? Son-in-law, your sons, daughters, anybody else in the city who, who belongs to you? Get them out of this place. For we're about to destroy this place because the outcry against his people is so great before the Lord that the Lord has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who were going to marry his daughters. Get up, he said. Get out of this place for the Lord is about to destroy this city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. At daybreak, the angels urged Lot on, get up, take your wife, your two daughters who are here, or you're going to be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he hesitated. Because of the Lord's compassion for him, the men grabbed his hand, his wife's hand, and the hands of his two daughters, and they brought him out 
and left him outside the city. The angel's like, get your people and get out of here. And the per- first people that Lot runs to are his sons-in-laws. And as he says, listen, listen, God's going to destroy the city. And they're like, this guy, he never stops joking, does he? They can't take him seriously. What? Because this isn't the way Lot speaks. He's not concerned about God's judgment. So now we see Lot has lost all influence with his family. Abraham was supposed to learn about God's character so that he could pass down the truth of God's character from generation to generation to generation so they would understand that God is, in fact, just and live accordingly. But this is what happens when you don't do that. Lot has no influence with his family. And and even with everything that he has seen, everything that he has heard, you get to this point in verse 16 where he hesitated. And we don't know why he hesitated. We don't know if it was a measure of disbelief, he was in paralysis. We have no idea why he hesitated. We just know that he hesitated long enough for the angels to grab him, his wife, his daughters, and to drag them away from impending doom, to drag them away from the judgment that was going to fall on Sodom. The angels had to drag them outside the city. And sometimes God has got to grab you and drag you kicking and screaming away from the thing that's going to destroy you. In fact, that's what God says. Because of the Lord's compassion for Lot, the men grabbed his hand. They wanted what was best for him. They wanted to protect them. Verse 17, as soon as the angels got them outside of the city, one of them said, run for your lives. Don't look back. Don't stop anywhere on the plain. Run to the mountains or you're going to be swept away. Lot said to them, no, no, my lords, please, your, your servant has indeed found favor with you and you've shown me great kindness by saving my life, but I can't run to the mountains. The disaster is going to overtake me and I'm going to die. Look, 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 this town over here, it's close enough for me to flee to. It's a small place. Let me run to it. It's, it's only a small place, isn't it? So let me run to it so I can survive. And that angel said to him, all right, I'll grant you your request about this matter too and will not demolish that town you mentioned. Hurry up, run to it. I cannot do anything until you get there. Therefore, the name of the city is Zoar, which means small. Then the sun had risen over the land when Lot reached Zoar. Then out of the sky, the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah, burning sulfur from the Lord. He demolished these cities, the entire plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and whatever grew on the ground. Judgment falls from God. How? How does God do anything? There's a lot of conjecture out there. Maybe, maybe God triggered an earthquake, and because this was the location where there was the tar pits you know, from a couple chapters ago, that some level of gases escaped from the ground, and then in the lightning and the judgment, it exploded, and this, this chemical rain came down. Or, or perhaps God just poured sulfur from heaven. What we do know is this. It was destructive enough that we're not even really sure where Sodom and Gomorrah were anymore. We have some ideas. It's, it's you know, probably the southern end of the, the Dead Sea. 
the Dead Sea's kind of got the two chunks to it, you know, the long chunk and the short chunk, and some people believe it's underneath that smaller, lower southern part of the Dead Sea. When God judges, it is to completion because he is just. Then you get perhaps the most popular verse of this entire um, story, verse 26. As they are running, Lot's wife looked back, became a pillar of salt. What does that mean? Well, the, the Hebrew word for looked back means to look intently, to gaze longingly, It can possibly be rendered lagged back. It has been translated other places as returned back. Now, that gives us a different picture of Lot's wife because I think sometimes we have the Sunday school uh, cartoon in our head where Lot's wife's like, let's get out of here, let's get out of here. She explodes in assault. (laughs) Right? That's what you think. But I think too. But, But probably a better understanding of it is she didn't just glance over her shoulder she tried to go back. And I think we get clarity from Luke 17 in the words of Jesus. It would be like on that day. So Jesus is using a picture. It's on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On the day a man who's on the housetop, the Son of Man is revealed, whose belongings are in the house. That man is on top of the house. So when the Son of Man comes, he should just go. He can't go back into the house to get his belongings. Likewise, the man who is out in the field must not Turn back to get his belongings. When the Son of Man comes, you go. You don't look back. You don't run for the things that your possessions, the things that you hold, hold dear. You go. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to, to make his life secure will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. So, 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 so I believe what Jesus is teaching is that she was seeking the security back in Sodom and instead lost everything. Now, we don't, did she zap into a pillar of salt? Did some of the chemicals fall in her, turn into salt? Many believe, I, I, I don't know that it matters a whole lot, but much like the inhabitants of Pompeii, uh, when the volcano erupted and they recovered um, and buried because of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius, that this could have happened to her. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know. I, I just know that, well, let, me, let me move to this. I, I just know that through this story, there are so many um, possible secondary applications to make that we tend to get focused on and we miss the primary one. So let me just kind of run through a couple of quick ones. So, so I think I would, if, I, if I had the opportunity to ask lots of questions, I would ask him, so, so what impact did you actually make on Sodom? As you moved into Sodom, what changed in Sodom because you were there? Now, Lot, what impact did Sodom make on you? I think we see that pretty clearly, don't you? Offering his daughters. Lot, what, what impact did Sodom make on your family? What are you doing about the impact the culture is making on you? Or on your family? <laughs> There's, there's that great saying that Jesus uses, if your hand offends you, cut it off. Cut it off! Okay, if you come back one-armed next week, it's not my fault. I want to just... But he's making a point. 
the culture is affecting you in a certain way, then you need to drastically change the way you are interacting with that culture. And, and there's a bunch more, but at time's sake, I need to move. I think the primary lesson is found, let's start reading in verse 27, because the story comes full circle. Early in the morning, Abraham went to the place where he had stood before the Lord. And he looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah and all the land of the plain. He saw that smoke was going up from the land like the smoke of a furnace. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the middle of the upheaval when he demolished the cities where Lot had lived. See, as the story ends, what ends up happening is we come back to Abraham. And Abraham is looking out in the plains and he sees the smoke rising from Sodom and Gomorrah. And he knows the justice of God has fallen. Sin has been judged. What Abraham knows is that the very character of the God he serves, the God who has called him, the God who has made all these promises to him, the very character of that God is that he is just. But I think he also notices a few other things about the character of God. Because though Sodom was destroyed and all of its inhabitants, Lot's still alive. Lot was spared. Why? Because in the middle of God's justice, there remains God's undeserved mercy, compassion, and grace, because that's who he is. The story of Genesis, the story of the Bible, it is all about how God made this perfect world and the first human sinned and screwed everything up, most importantly, our relationship with God. And that the sin that they committed has actually infected the human heart and has been passed down from generation to generation to generation to generation. And every single one of us in this room has sinned. We are all sinners. Pretty little sins or big ugly sins, it doesn't matter. Every single one of us is a sinner. And justice demands that sin be dealt with. God would not be just if he just overlooked our sin. Our sin at its most basic level is rebellion against the God who created everything, who created us. And as a sinner, we stand before God as his enemy. Would God destroy us all? Would God destroy us all? Or suppose there was even one righteous one. Just one. Would God show mercy on us if there was one? Now, one would have to be so incredibly righteous that he could save all the wicked. That'd be a lot of righteousness. And God essentially has said through the rest of the story of Scripture, through his entire word, that for the sake of one righteous, he will not destroy all of the wicked. 
Because Jesus Christ, God's own son, sinless, spotless, righteous, is that one. And so for any, for all who put their trust in Jesus alone, he paid the penalty of all of their sin. He paid the price of their justice and offers them all of his righteousness. And the righteousness of Christ is enough to save the wickedness of any and all who put their trust in him. And please hear me. If you are here this morning, you're like, what is this? Put your trust in Christ. It is not complicated. It does not look like carrying a big enough Bible or a Bible with the right initials on it or getting in baptismal water or giving a big enough check or climbing upstairs on your knees or getting the right tattoo or the haircut or the right color shirt. It's not praying the right prayer. It is crying out from your heart what your life has demonstrated to be true each and every day. I am a sinner and you're the Savior and you're the only hope I have so I rest in you to rescue me. That's it. That's it. And because of that one man, God, God, man's righteousness, get it right, we have hope. How many of you have experienced the mercy of God? How have you demonstrated it? See, we, we don't live for him in order to get brownie points. We live with him at the center because we cannot imagine the justice that we deserve and the righteousness that is ours through his finished work on the cross. Praise God for that one. Lord, I pray that you would open our hearts even now as we close our time together. Father, would you remind us of what it is we have in Christ Lord, to be reminded of what we have in Christ, we've got to be reminded of what we didn't have. We need to be reminded of how far separated from you we were. We need to be reminded of of how broken we are. We need to be reminded of how far we were from you and, and how every time we tried to do something right, it just heaped up the offense in your eyes. We need to be reminded that we were your very enemies, deserving absolutely no good. Then we need to be reminded that the work of the cross has given us the gift that we need. The forgiveness of sins, the purchase of our pardon, the payment of our guilt debt. God, may we live a life that demonstrates our thankfulness and gratefulness for your mercy. It's in Jesus' good and wonderful name I pray. Amen.